My name is Keith Beavers, and please tell me I'm not alone in thinking that every mechanical pencil across the board has terrible, terrible erasers. Just terrible. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 12 of Vine Pairs Wine 101 Podcast. This is the bonus season. My name is Keith Beavers. I'm the tasting director of Vine Pair, and how are you doing? I'm sure you're fine. So today we are going to dip into England. Yeah, English wine, specifically English sparkling wine. It's happening. It's going to keep happening. It was happening. It's happening again. Let's just clear all this up. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine and spirits. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with La Marca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini and Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Interested in trying some of the wine brands discussed on Wine 101? Follow the link in each episode description to purchase featured wines or browse our full portfolio at BarrelRoom.com. Cheers and all the best. Now, when one says English wine, I'm sure it can be a little bit confusing. I mean, some of you out that are listening are like, oh, cool, I've heard about English wine. Let's, let's talk about it. But I would, I would bet there's a lot of you out there that are like, wait a second, English wine? The English make wine? I and mean, if you listen to... Wine 101, which you do, um, you know, the English and their relationship with wine was never so much on the production side as it was on the imported into England and drink a lot of it side. I mean, you had their relationship to France. You had the relationship to Portugal, Madeira, and all these places. Also, with the the um, the the might of the British Navy. You had a lot of the you know the port and the Madeira being distributed throughout the colonies and and all this stuff. Well, England did and does make wine, and today it's primarily sparkling wine, which we'll get into in a second. The Roman invasion of England is kind of a big moment in the history of the British Isles. And of course, if Romans are around, wine is absolutely around. And there are a lot of um, archaeological digs of Roman sites in, in England that show evidence of winemaking. But there's even evidence of winemaking from the Third Ice Age. They found grape seeds and, and stuff like that. Um, of course, that has nothing to do with today. <laughs> it's just a very interesting thing to know. And other things to know are, for example, there is a, uh, a tribe or a colony called the Belgae, and they were originally from Gaul. And when the Romans invaded Gaul, they fled and made their way to England. And, of course, they brought with them their wine-making skills from that part of the world, which is now France. And as you're looking at the history of England, you get to the 12th and to the 13th centuries, and this is where they have sort of a golden age of winemaking, where wine was being grown and made from the southern part of England all the way up to Yorkshire, which is in the northern part of the country near Scotland. But after the 13th century, this is where we set up sort of uh, why we don't know much about English wine is because climate change happened. And there was a movement of a certain jet stream. And the 
the weather in England became just n- not ideal for wine so much that, I mean, wine did continue to be made, vines were grown, but it was not a priority for the people of England. And this is when England starts looking elsewhere for wine and they end up in Gascony in Southwest France and everything kind of flows from there, eventually Bordeaux, and it goes on from there. And not only did a cooling of the country because of climate change contribute to this, but also the Black Death was pretty bad and people were not necessarily as, you know, worried about wine as they were about life and living and stuff like that. But also this created a major labor shortage. So everything had to be kind of consolidated at some point in history. When the 20th century rolls around, this is what begins sort of the, uh, the revival of wine or I should say viticulture in the British Isles, mostly in England. There is some wine being made in Wales and in Scotland, but of course it's primarily in England. And this begins in the mid forties and this revival, this sort of excitement goes through to the nineties. Now that's a lot. There's a lot of decades there. (laughs) And, um, the, the, uh, the reputation of English wine was very kind of thin and acidic, but now as that's why we don't really hear about it that much. And a lot of the wines are made mostly from grapes like Bacchus and Ortega. These were crossbred varieties, mainly from the great Muller Thurgau that made sort of thin, neutral, sometimes sweet wines. But through the 90s, something really interesting started happening in England, especially in the southern part of England. Climate change happened again. But this time, instead of things cooling down, things started to warm up. And obviously that was bad for a lot of things, but it, oddly enough, was and is beneficial to the wine industry of England. It helps with viticulture. And as things started warming up, new vines are being planted. And this time we're seeing the champagne varieties. We're seeing Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. There are other varieties being grown, but those are starting to become the focus of everything. Because this is what's so unique about this part of the world. England was warming up, but it's traditionally a cool environment. So even though it does, it is warming up, it's not like warming up like crazy. So when once vines produced thin and acidic wines, now they are still producing high acid wine, but that's the kind of wine you need to make great sparkling wine. So England is beginning to become a country known primarily for sparkling wine made from Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. And what's really cool is that the majority of this action, the activity of the wine producing, or the winemaking industry of England, is in the southeast. And if you look at a map of all of the counties of England, in the southeast you see Greater London. And the wine regions just kind of are east, north, and south of London. So you have Norfolk, Suffolk, and Essex County, which are just northeast of London. Then you have south of London, you have Kent. And then west of Kent, you have a county called Surrey. And below that, you have the large county of Sussex, which is split up into an east and west Sussex. That is primarily the wine-growing, wine-producing region or regions of 
England. Yes, there are vineyards grown other places. There are some things happening in Cornwall, I believe, in the Southwest. But this is what we're going to see on the American market. And what's really neat about this is... Earlier, we were talking about all the archaeology and all, you know, finding of these very old, even like third ice age uh, remnants of winemaking by humans. This is the area where they found a lot of this stuff. I just find it very, it's just fascinating, guys. Like this country, you know, couldn't make wine, then it could make wine, then it couldn't make wine. And now it's making wine again. And it's all basically in this the same area. It's like this area of England has changed climatically throughout the years and stopped and started the wine industry. I just find that fascinating. So even though the country has a well over 500 wineries, the majority or 80% of all of those wineries are located in that area, with most of it being in the south. North of London, when you get into the, uh, the Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex area, that's only about a small percent. Some people say five or 12% of the wine is made there. It's all basically made down in the larger counties. And to give you a sense of that, it's in those counties that we see the wines that you're going to see on the American market, wineries that can make enough wine for international distribution. And I want to mention these winemakers because you're going to see them on shelves and you should definitely check them out. Um, they're not inexpensive. They start at about 30 to $40, but they're worth it because the balance is there, the character and the quality is there, and this is kind of giving you a, a sort of taste of what's to come. Now, the majority of the sparkling wine being made in England, of course, is made from the three champagne grapes, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and they are, I don't know if they're using other varieties. I don't think they, they, they won't list them on their labels or anything. But they do use the French nomenclature for their wines, like Blanc de Blanc is, is Chardonnay, Blanc de Noir, and all that. So that that's kind of cool. I mean, you're looking at a British or an, an English um, uh, wine label, and but you're able to understand like Blanc de Blanc because that's how you see it on Champagne, and it's famous and all that. One bottle you'll see around is called Chapel Down, and that is from Kent, the county that is just southeast of London. And these wines are, well, the, the, the unique, or I say unique all the time in this podcast, the thing about Kent is the limestone in the soils. And limestone is very awesome for grapevines. And there's a specific kind of limestone called Kimmeridgen that's famous in the Champagne region. So that's why it's happening here as well. And the wines, the sparkling wines that come out of Kent, specifically with Chapel Down, which you'll be able to find, is a very lean, not, not, I'm sorry, not lean. They have a nice mineral note, very apple and very crisp. To give you a sense of how exciting this area is, Tattinger, the Champagne House, has purchased land outside the village of Kent. So they, the Champagne people, are looking in there going, oh, this could be very cool. So it's definitely something to check out or keep your eye on and check out. Now, south of Kent is that large county, Sussex, that's literally divided into east and west. This is where you have two wineries you're going to see a lot on the American market. One is called Ridgeview. Another one is called Nytimber. This area, you know, the Champagne houses are looking at Kent, but Sussex is a very exciting, very popular and up and coming region. It is the most southern southern facing 
of the regions, a lot of the vineyards are facing south. I actually had the, the, the opportunity to go to this place and go to one of the wineries there. It's really awesome to see vineyards in England and then drink the wines. And this, it, it, the thing is that they're still high on the minerality and lean, not leanness. I keep on saying leanness. They're, they're bright, they're clean, they're crisp, they're minerally, they're refreshing. They have bubbles. They're so great. And some of the wines that you get in the Southern park, like in Sussex have a little bit more depth to them than they will up in, in Kent, but they're, unique in themselves. And when it comes to the other areas, we just don't see the wines on our market yet. There's a lot of small wine production happening in England. And that's really great because that's how it all begins, right? And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger from there. There are some very old wineries in other counties, like some of the oldest wineries from the 1950s are still there. They're just not coming to the United States. So we don't, we shouldn't really talk about them and get everybody confused if you start with these three, you're really going to get a sense of this area. One thing to know about England as well is it does have, you know, an, it does not have an Appalachian system. It does have a PDO and a PGI designation. Now, if you don't know what those words mean or those acronyms are, just go back to my Appalachians episode. I get it all into that. But it's not, it's, it's almost as broad as an American, American viticultural area. Not really, but but kind of. I mean, there is England is its own basically PDO, and you have English wine, which is known as sort of like the more focused wine, and then you have Eng- English regional, which is a larger, more um, less restrictive way of making wine. But the thing is, the English wine, which is the top tier, if you will, is not as strict. <laughs> it's not a, it's not really that strict. And really what it comes down to is just that the grapes need to be made in a designated area with prescribed winemaking um, methods. But it really is about the grapes coming from England more than anything else. So, you know, the history and the modern times for wine in England is kind of brief just because it doesn't have the intensity as France or Italy or Spain and the history that's connected to the vine like like those countries have. But something about England is very important in wine. And it happens to be very important for glass. And it's just so interesting that the wine that England is making the best of is sparkling wine. Because we did the champagne episode, but I couldn't go into the history, but what's very cool is the English were the ones that created the bottle strength that could hold the pressure of sparkling wine. In the mid early to mid 1600s, there was a man by the name of Sir Kenlam Digby. And this guy was an eccentric dude. I mean, he was into alchemy and he was into astrology, which is whatever. That's fine. It's just what he did with it. There was a quote, somebody is quoted as saying that this guy is, quote, the very Pliny of our age for lying. <laughs> I won't get into all of it, but one thing is very just wild. He created this thing called powder of sympathy. And it's this like sort of like homeopathic, astrological sort of um, remedy where if you're injured, you put powder on the thing that injured you, and then that would... I don't know, guys. 
It's crazy. But one thing this guy did do is own a glass workshop in the early 1600s. And one thing he scientifically did do is create brownish green glass strong enough to hold sparkling wine. Uh, I don't know the, 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 the crazy ratios, but he increased the ratio of sand to potash and limestone, creating a stronger bottle. And this is the bottle that helped the sparkling wine industry thrive. So it's just, you see the connections all there? It's just kind of cool, right? England makes sparkling wine. They invented the bottle to make, to put the wine in. I don't know. I like this kind of full circle stuff. It just kind of, the connections are so great. Even though England doesn't have a deep history like of wine like other parts of Europe, it has that one deep connection that's so important for its legacy going forward. It's awesome. And that's English sparkling wine for you guys. English still wine is not really a thing right now, but maybe it one day will. But for now, go out and try some of those winemakers that I mentioned. And if you dig it or whatever you think about it, go on Keith on Instagram and give me a hashtag wine101 and let me know what you think. Talk to you guys soon. Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week.